Hello everyone, welcome to the Desolation Sounds podcast. My name is Stephen Hook and this is a podcast celebrating everything to do within the world of alternative music, be that rock, punk, metal or extreme metal. This week we've got new music from Hacktivist, Mastodon, a new album announcement from Megadeth bassist David Ellefson, and album reviews this week go to A Million Dead Birds Laughing, which is a great name, Rhapsody of Fire and Open Mic this week comes from Strood, Stroud, one of them. Uh, it is Milk Teeth with their mighty debut album, Vile Child. But, of course, news. There's none. New music. Hacktivists have a new song out called Reprogram. It's their first original song with Jock Maxi and Josh Gurner taking over from vocals, replacing Ben Marvin and Timothy James. Um, Hacktivists always stroke me as a bit of a weird one because in their... The early EP and just their online presence, they always had such a big surrounding and a big um, aura to them. And then when they went and did the cover of NIP, they sort of like really explored at that point. And I think it just took too long for their debut album to come out. And all their momentum that they got kind of dissipated because I don't remember hearing anyone talk about that uh, first Hacktivist album. But... New song, it sounds a little bit darker than what I remember of OG Hacktivist. And it'll be interesting to find because Ben and Timothy obviously were the front men. And replacing one front man is difficult enough, let alone two. So I'm intrigued. It, the song reprogram, like I said, is a little bit darker. Um, but it is everything you, I think, can expect from Hacktivist in general. Which is, if you're unfamiliar with them, they are a genty rap metal outfit. And they're British, so we have to like them. Mastodon also have a new song out, it is for Record Store Day, and it is a cover of Led Zeppelin's uh, iconic, bloody iconic, uh, Stairway to Heaven. It is in tribute as well to their long-term manager, uh, Nick John, who sadly passed away in September last year. Uh, the band regard him as a father figure, and it was his favourite song, and they even played a, or a, a rendition of it for his funeral, and they figured they might as well put it to record, and I think portion if not all of the uh, money from sales of the LP or single however releasing it goes towards his family and aftercare and all that sort of thing so really nice little um, I was going to say suggestion but it's not like I can't think of the word really nice thing they're doing we're just going to go with the thing but yeah Stay with Heaven by Mastodon and Reprogrammed by Hacktivist. I mean, two new songs for this week. There's also new music or new album, I should say, announced by David Ellison. He is the bassist of a little band called Megadeth. You may have heard of him. And he has a solo album coming out. Uh, I've f forgot how to read dates. The 5th of July. It's coming out the 5th of July this year. It is called Sleeping Giants. It's going to have a plethora of guests on there. And from the list in front of me, the ones I recognize, you've got John Bush. Of Armored Saint, formerly of Anthrax. Bumblefoot, who I'm pretty sure used to play in Guns N' Roses. Uh, Mark Tremonti from Alter Bridge, ugh, Alter Bridge and Tremonti. Uh, David McLean from Sacred Reich, formerly of Machine Head as well. You've got loads of other guys in there. Also, there's going to be a remix by Christian Nairn, who plays Hodor in some kind of TV show. So, got that, got that to look forward to in a few months' time. So... And reviews this week come from, well, first of all, the brilliantly named A Million Dead Birds Laughing. It is their fourth album and it's called To The Ether. They hail from Melbourne, down there in Aussie, Australia. 
And they are a tech, me- tech death metal band, I should say. And a lot of the places where I looked them up kind of describe them as grindcore as well. I don't really hear it, but from what I've read, 2D Ether is more of a bit of a musical change for Dead Birds Laughing. The opening song, Martyrdom in the Fourth Dimension, opens with absolute blistering pace. And the madness in the structure, the overall vocal sound and performance reminds me a lot of Sixth. Um, the vocalist, who is Adam Stewart, has a Mikey Goodman-like sound to him in general. And it's very much an album of two very different halves. The harsher end of it is extremely captivating. You've got drummer Daniel Presland. He does a fucking great job of controlling it all. Cause I think I read he was voted like Australia's fastest drummer a few years back. So you've got really good rhythm section for a tech bat tech death bound yeah tech death band if you're gonna have someone who is literally award winning for their speed um the way i kind of described his drum playing in this is you know how this is gonna go really really weird direction in like dance music or techno music you've got the beat and that pretty much establishes the song and then they build melodies around it whereas a lot of like guitar and more organic music you sort of obviously lead guitars and vocals they set the song and then you've got the rhythm section that with the drums and the bass that sort of like sit in the back i feel like the way they've organized this feels more like the more dancey techno stuff because he does lead the beat a lot and the mixing as well has extra prominence to his drum sound excuse me um Ben Boyle, the guitarist, he's his a guitar. I don't know how to describe it. It almost sounds distressed. And like Every time he, he's not really plucking, it's more scrapes or literally pinching the strings or weird things like that. And to the ear, it's really grating. But in the grand scheme of things, where it is a very moody, atmospheric, technical death metal album, it so it does fit in really well. It's just, like I said, in comparison to everything else, it's quite. I know. I was gonna say off-putting, but that's not quite right. It's just very discordant, I guess. Very discordant. Um, but it works really well, like I said. And like I said, I don't hear grindcore as such in the album at all. But in songs like Lit and Of Storms and Stars. I kind of get more of a black metal, black metal vibe to it all. Just the way the synths sort of back it up in the background and just the riffs from Boyle. Yeah, I think there's more of a cult claw hand sort of thing. So that's like the first half of the album where it is very fast, very extreme, very aggressive. But then for the second half of the album, it is largely slow ambient gothy atmosphere building pieces which really takes the steam out of the album and trying to make so i get that with this what they're trying to do they're trying to make some kind of moody album and that's fair enough there's you know definitely a market for that but it is to me it's always quite difficult just to get the one song in like songs like that they need to set a stage and continue a theme for an album um personally i'm not really a fan 
even on like bands that I listen to a lot, like um, While She Sleeps did Kangezu Ni from Brainwash, and I've probably butchered whatever Japanese word that's meant to be, and Gallows did it on Orchestra Walls with Last Fight for Living Dead. Even then, I don't really get it, but I guess that's just me. The only time, and this is a really out there example considering uh, To The Ether, being as an ocean, was it last year, year before, for Waiting For Morning To Come, I felt that was passable because every other song was this moody, ambient, electro, post-rock kind of thing. And then it felt more case of it was one big piece of music that they had just chopped up into little pieces and that made the album. Whereas, so yeah, it was like a lot more spread out compared to To The Aether. Whereas this, a lot of the latter half of the album is this moody, storytelling, ambient thing going on. And like I said, I know for uh, like tech de- um, tech fest fans and people of this uh, community, they do go for that sort of thing. And there are parts that I would say you could keep. Uh, her son builds up like the ambience and the dramatics in the background while still keeping the core um, tech death sound. I almost would like describe it as you know you got like um, post black metal and that kind of thing. I sort of see it as like a post-death metal kind of thing when they do it in Hearson or Hearson, sorry. And I can even accept Abyssal Comfort and Woe. That's like a one-minute spoopy ambient thing they got going on. But you've got Dim and you've got Phoenix File collectively for two songs. That is 10 minutes of just spooky spoken word ASMR that's built to enhance the album, but for me, it just kind of makes things a little bit boring, which I don't like describing music as boring because that's not kind of what I'm here for. But there's a market for it. I feel like people like albums that tell dramatic stories and I'm about to review another album that does that. But in this case, it wasn't for me. Too much story building and not enough actual music, but... Like I said, Mark of Fora, I've kind of compared them musically to Cephalic Carnage, uh, Fallujah as well. And I'm going to keep Sixth in there because the text stuff is really, really discordant. I can remember that word now. Discordant and heavy. And yeah, I find a lot of comparisons to um, Adam Stewart and Mikey Goodman. So go for any of them. Cephalic Carnage. Fallujah and sixth go for A Million Dead Birds Laughing and their fourth album to the ether. Ah, pressing buttons shouldn't be pressing. Next album up for this week is an al- a band I hold near and dear to my cold dead heart. It is Rhapsody of Fire with that album, The Eighth Mountain, despite it being album number 12, because numbers are irrelevant. And they are from Trieste in Italy. I really hope I got that right. I got a proper good roll on the on the R as well, didn't I? And they are a symphonic power metal band. And I discovered Rhapsody many, many moons ago, back in... Must be about 2007. When I was in my infancy of exploring weird and wonderful music. And at the time, I had just got into a band called Manowar. You may have heard of them. I go on about them quite a bit. And at that particular point, so 2007 would have been when Manowar released in God of, Gods of War. 
their bassist, Joey DeMaio, at the time, excuse me, was manager of Rhapsody of Fire because I think it's still going, but Rhapsody were signed to Magic Circle Music, which is a DIY record label that members of Manowar made. So Rhapsody were one of the bands on there. Joey DeMaio managed them and I found them through that way because I was completely indebted and in love with Manowar at the time. And when I eventually found Rhapsody, I completely fell in love with their dramatic brand of symphonic power metal. Uh, songs like Emerald Sword, Holy Thunder Force, Unholy War Christ still remains one of my favourite songs ever. And the first album, so in between... Oh, I can't remember what, what the name of the album is now. In between uh, The Frozen Tears of Angels, which came out in 2010, and whatever album came out before that, I'm going to really, really think and not look into. Triumph of Agony, that was it. So Triumph of Agony came out in 2006. In 2006. In between that, there was loads of like label disputes between Rhapsody and Magic Circle and Joey DeMaio. And when that adventure came out, Frozen Tears of Angels ended up becoming my first conscious release from Rhapsody. And, you know, it was mildly enjoyable. It wasn't quite up to the standard I built up for myself from the previous music I'd listened to. But after that, my attention just sort of dropped off from Rhapsody. And From Chaos to Eternity didn't really draw me in at all. And then after that, Luca Torelli, who is the guitarist of the band and very, very noteworthy in the whole lore of Rhapsody. Uh, he announced he was stepping away from the band and the Aftermath album that came out afterwards, uh, Dark Wings of Steel, just went straight by me. Did not really give it a second look and it wasn't because to really well i guess part of it was the fact that to really left i was mildly stubborn still am and similarly i don't think i really paid that much attention to into legend either which came out in 2016 and i think at that point i might have just well, i think i did i just moved on from a power metal phase that i had when i was younger and i was more invested in the modern music was coming out of the time so 2016 it was milk teeth i was about to look at Marmosets were around then, the Defiled, Hawkeyes. Like, it was the mid part of the tens or teens, whatever you want to call it, had a lot of exciting new bands pop through. And so, a lot of like the older bands I listened to were sort of like I left behind. And Rhapsody were one of them. To the point where I got so disconnected from following Rhapsody that I didn't realize that their frontman, Fabio Leone, and their drummer Alex Holsworth had both left the band until a year later. They left. In, they both left in 2016. I didn't realize until 2017 when they released an album called Legendary Years, which is basically a re-recording of the greatest hits from their Emerald Sword saga. So Rhapsody likes to sing. They like to tell stories over multiple albums, kind of like how Coed and Camry do. So they've got the Emerald Sword saga. I can't remember what came afterwards, but now they're on the Nephilim Empire. Uh, but the Emerald Sword Saga had some of their biggest songs. And it was albums 1 through 5, and you had Emerald Sword, Holy Thunder Force, Land of Immortals. And yeah, Legendary Years was them re-recording some of those songs. And I understand why they did it. It shows off... Well, it shows off the new vocalist, Giacomo Voli. It doesn't really show off the new drummer... Manu Lotta, because he's got to play someone else's drum parts. 
personally, I wouldn't have done it, and I wasn't a fan of it, because you compare other acts that have lost their frontman, or I say lost, that's a bit dramatic, when the frontmans leave other bands, like Killswitch or Iron Maiden, you just move on. You can play those songs live, and everyone's like, oh, I remember when someone did this, and you can sort of compare them live to who can do it better. I know a lot of Anthrax fans do that as well. But when it comes to like putting it to disc, just let those old songs lie and then just move forward with a new album, which is what they should have done. And I think the grand census is that's what they should have done because, like I said, Emerald Sword and this, well, it's particularly Emerald Sword and Holy Thunder Force, they are very, very cherished and revered in Rhapsody's fan base. So then, Eighth Mountain, this is kind of their, well, this is their first studio album with the new lineup as well as the new saga like I said before the Nephilim Empire saga straight away there is a brand new feel of energy to the band and the music I don't know if it's just because it's a bunch of fresh faces or I think the lineup is a little bit younger now or whatever it is and the umph from the orchestral sections is back they feel like they are functioning that they are a functioning part of the music instead of just feeling like they're there because they need to be there which is what I think thought I felt on I think it was Dark Wings of Steel the choir back segments they are so cheesy and I fucking love it this is power metal is like the musical equivalent of a soap opera and I fucking love that shit um to the choir back segments they keep the um, dramatics in and they feel like they help ease Voli into that frontman role I'll talk about Voli a little bit more in a bit but they really emphasize his vocals and it's given that like extra bit of power behind everything he sings, everything he says. And quite a lot, I kept finding myself really drawn in on the drums. I couldn't put my finger on what it was. And the best way of describing for a while is they're quite thrash metal-like. Which, it's not to say they were like overtly faster or punkier. Because Alex Holdsworth, the previous drummer, he the songs where he plays really fast as well. He's a very good drummer. And by no means is there any punk rock on this at all. I would be fucking amazed if there was. But and I think I managed to identify it is Lotta has transition feels. So whether it's like a little roll on the tr- uh, on the toms or usually the ones I picked up more, little rolls on the cymbals as you go through. That extra little note or that extra little sound gives the album a, a different kind of heaviness to it. That I just think they lacked before. And doing some digging on Manu Lotta, I found that he used to play in a melodic death metal band called Farewell to Arms. So I fucking called it, and that's where it all came from. The I think it was Reign of Fury that came out a couple months ago that I looked at. And I remember being quite down on Alex Staropoli's keyboard sound then. I felt it was quite titty. It's still prevalent and it's still all throughout the album and I kind of still feel that way I've warmed to it a bit but the rest of the album sounds so modern because the whole story from what I've picked up about the Nephilim Empire it's a little bit more sci-fi this time they talk about constructs which the constructs I should say which after watching Altered Carbon Altered Carbon I can't fucking talk again I feel like there is some some copyright infringement there somewhere but what do I know but yeah, the rest of the album, it sounds so modern, so well produced, 
the like tinniness of like an old school keyboard sound that Star Poly has, it does stick out a fair old bit. For Voli though, Giacomo Voli, he is a new frontman. I think he does a fucking great job on here. Um, I've read that Rhapsody fans can be fairly like they typically sticklers for tradition. So replacing the one, I think I described it as it is an unenviable task. I think is suffice to say. But then replacing any frontman of any band is going to be a fucking ball ache in itself. But honestly, he really owns the field on the album. He has a similar mid-range to Leone, so in a sense it is still... There's familiarity for OG listeners. But he, I reckon he's got a better grasp of the higher range, and I've seen a lot of people mention the fact he does have, in general, a higher range than Leone. Um, and that grasp of the higher range, it sets him apart and gives him, out, gives him his own identity in the band. And I kind of compared it to when Halloween, I know this is like before my time, but whatever, like when I went through Power Metal back in the day, going from Kai Hansen to Michael Kisk, they are, they have their similarities, especially back in the day, but there was, while they were similar and you didn't affect the overall Halloween sound, they both had the little bits that made them individual, does that make sense? As for the songs themselves, they are still absolutely cheesy as fuck, and I and I love it. You could make a pretty decent Carbonara with White Wizard and Reign of Fury. They are still absolutely brilliant songs. Um, choruses are strong throughout. Voli, I really hope I'm pronouncing his name right, actually, because it's German and I'm British, and we tend to butcher names quite a lot. And I say this pretty much every week, but yeah. Uh, Voli gets to flex his vocal muscles with a strong and sensible backing from a backing choir and orchestra throughout. So, like, I touched on a little bit a minute ago. He's got his chances to really show off what he can do, but they are very smart of when they allow the choruses, oh, sorry, the choir and the orchestra to go alongside him. And when it's power metal, you need it to be dramatic anyway. So, yeah, I think it's really, really good idea. Well, really, really good how they do it all. Warrior Heart strays into the folk metal territory, which I'm all about, and it allows the orchestra to take um, center stage for that sort of song. It's another one a little bit later. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. I think it was The Wind, The Rain, The Moon. Another one that's very folk music heavy. I wasn't too keen on The Wind, actually. I prefer uh, Warrior Heart. Excuse me, I'm dying again. Uh, the opening two songs salvo of Seven Heroic Deeds and Master of Peace. That's obviously coming off the 48 second long intro song. Which they still don't like intro songs even when they're like this. Um, Seven Heroic Deeds and Master of Peace is the moment where Robbie DeMichele, Michelle, Michelle, I'm going to go with Michelle. Um, he gets to stake his own claim on the album. And I think if you took away all like the backing choruses and synths and all that McGubbins, riff wise, riff wise, and just general musically, it's very Judas Priesty. And since he is now, or has been for a couple of years, or a couple of albums, sorry, he's the lone guitarist and one of the now principal songwriters. I think he's really found his comfort zone in being able to bounce his own guitar ideas off himself. So. Instead of saying, like, I'll play this, which hopefully we should work with that, he can say, oh, I'll play this because it works well like that. 
in terms of back to Voli, his he's got little experiments with harsher vocals, and the one that I kept noticing on the most was Seven Heroic Deeds. It's not a completely foreign concept in Rhapsody's back catalogue. Uh, Power of the um, they did a cover of Manowar's Power of Thy Sword, which is an incredible cover. Listen to it; it's great. And so, they, yeah, they used it on there, and it worked quite well because it adds an extra bit of oomph to their music. And because their music in general is very uplifting, the very, very, very sporadic use of harsh vocals makes the vocals themselves all the more menacing. Because we, you can listen to death metal black metal and you kind of get used to it being like an aggressive vocal line most of the time but when they are used so sparingly in music that's so light-hearted and very like i said very uplifting when they are used they have that much more power behind them and much more meaning and just sound fucking even more terrifying than it would usually be um if you haven't already guessed yet i really 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 enjoy this album um, the drips and drabs that I had heard from, or since the Frozen Tears of Angels, all the way back in 2010 or whatever it was, have been middling to disappointing at best. This is an absolute triumph for me. It is Symphony in the Chant of Lands or Triumph for Agony levels of good. Um, it's fun and it's entertaining and it makes you want to don chainmail one more time to pillage your local Sainsbury's. I am so happy that they are back on form and it is a triumphant return to form. Um, long may it continue. I was going to do a for fans off bit, but since they are kind of the pioneers of this genre of symphonic power metal, it would feel weird to recommend them from other bands of this ilk. But what I will say is if you are looking to get into more niche metal or just metal in general, I've talked about it a few times before, Manowar and Rhapsody and obviously a few others, but Rhapsody were one of the bands that acted as feeder music into that heavier realms of uh, metal and more niche musical styles. So, yeah, like I said, back in 2007, I got like a greatest hits from, I can't remember what the website was called at the time, but it's kind of like Last FM, but better. Just going through like a basic greatest hits of Rhapsody of Fire, got me into eventually now last year my favorite album was Zelanada which is a black metal with um gang chants and slavery music in there so if you want to get I'm not saying that's going to be like that for everyone but if you want to have like a little bit more aggression in your lives you'll do worse than starting off with Rhapsody of Fire to sort of like ease you into things because no one wants to go straight into Anal Nothrak or Cannibal Corpse god knows I didn't Cool, so before we go on to open mic, I wrote a mini review for a mini EP, and then as soon as I finished writing it, I realized that it came out last year. I hit it, but still, I'm going to talk about it, I'm just going to write it down. Problematic, Problematic, Problem Addict um, released a three-song EP called Stayed in Bed All Weekend. Um, from what I can tell, it's, a, it's her debut release. She's from Charlotte, North Carolina, and she does like an acoustic emo kind of thing. Like I said, it technically came out October last year, but fuck you. It is broody, gloomy, and ever so loody. She sings about death, love, and depression, which is your standard emo tick sheet. Uh, it's really good music if you want to just sit and watch the rain whilst everything goes black and white. And for the fans of part, if you go for the strong silent type, bright eyes, or 
last year there was an album by a band called Teenage Wrist. If you think of a more acoustic version of Teenage Wrist, that's more in line to Problem Addict. Like I say, it's very dark and dingy acoustic emo. Lots of reverb, lots of sadness. And yeah, a little mini one that I threw in there as well. So, those are your albums of modern albums-ish for this week. Uh, Million Dead Blood Laughing, Rhapsody of Fire and Problem Addict, not Attic. Open mic then, it is... Okay, scratch your nose, sorry. It is Vile Child. It is the 2016 debut album for Milk Teeth. Uh, the band come all the way from Stroud. Stroud? Stroud, I think. They do a punk... Well, back then, it was a punk-influenced grunge mess, sure. Um, I came across Milk Teeth after hearing a plethora of reviews and just general people talking about the band. But the final straw came from uh, Stephen Hill. I can't remember what podcast. I think he was off um, That's Not Metal at the time. Now he is of the Right Act podcast. Do check it out because it's brilliant. Does everything better than I can. And his glowing review from when he looked at Vile Child or a live show of Milk Teeth or whatever it was, was just go out and buy the buy the album. Don't stream it. Just go out and buy it because it'll be worth your every cent that you put into it, or every penny you put into it. Don't know why I went with cent first. I'm not American. And which is exactly what I did. I went online after listening to that podcast, bought the album, and a few years later, I am now completely obsessed with Milk Teeth, which isn't unhealthy at all. You're weird. And it anchors like the first time I'd ever bought an album without previously listening to anything they'd done. I'd bought albums based on a single or um, I've just bought the Ali Reza album which is a hip-hop artist that's signed to it's behind me actually earache records that was it um yeah just bought it based on the fact it's come off earache and the first two songs i heard about it were actually really good and it's dark and dingy and spooky and shit and i'm trying to get into more hip-hop but this is the first time i had literally just gone yeah fuck it why not it's back when the days where i had more disposable income i miss being a student so, they've had that. Milk Teeth have had their fair share of changes in their comparatively short lifespan. I think they formed in like 2013. And they've had various errors, I guess you could say. Um, but in this guise, in 2016, on paper, on record, I should say, they were a grunge heavy four piece fronted by co vocalist uh, Becky Blomfield, who's still with the band, Josh Bannister, and they were joined by. Chris Webb, who is a guitarist, and the mentalist, who is the drummer as well, Ollie Holbrook. Uh, three weeks before this album was released, though, Josh Bannister would leave the band, and lots of people would say, have they already fucked it before things got started? Spoilers, they didn't, but let's pretend we don't know that yet. This album feels like it's a... It's an album made by Angry Millennials for Angry Millennials. There is a lot of... Uh, relationship, love, a lot of mental health song topics around here, which is something I'll get to a little bit more in a bit. If you if you're aware of Milk Teeth through their Roadrun release, like the two shot EPs of Be Nice and Go Away, where for me I think that's more grunge influenced punk and grunge influenced pop punk. Vile Child is a far more raw, unrestrained, it's more punk-influenced 90s grunge. So grunge is definitely 
the key thing from the album. And so like opening number Brickwork is all the early anger of 90s Foo Fighters. And then the follow-up Driveway Birthday goes on the other side of things where it's far more um, foreboding, Nirvana-esque skulk. That's all about the trials and tribulations of mental health. And it's dark. It is very dark. Turn on light, please, because it's very dark. Um, and as I was saying before, the whole ethos about mental health, it's something that they really, even now, they still champion. And they are very open, especially well, as a three-piece now. So I'll get into what's happened with them now. But they are Becky, Ollie, and M. Foster. And all of them just are very open and very honest about mental health and encourage people to talk about that sort of thing and have charity and help concerts and they had i don't know how well best way to describe them they just had a meet and greet which was all the money all the money you paid in to get in went directly to a charity whose name i forget i'm very sorry but it was just all about making sure you had someone to talk to and that is that fucking astounding is what it is um and you don't see enough bands do it i don't think Especially when today, when mental health is such a sensitive and still, some places still kind of taboo. So, props to Milk Tea for being just good dudes. Uh, where was I? Uh, the punk rock side, like I said, they are, on this one they are more punk rock influenced grunge. The full punk rock sort of thing does come through quite a bit. Um, on Cut You Up, Josh damn near sounds like his throat's being shredded to absolute buggery to the point where you could say it's almost like a hardcore punk kind of song instead of just punk rock which there is a divide there is a difference i'm not gonna try and explain it because i'll fuck it up um similarly on get a clue it is a lot more punk rock on there and josh is a lot more of a raw og punk kind of vocalist compared to becky uh the subject of which she is the absolute star of the show uh, i saw a review that basically labeled her vocals as sugary sweet and I get what they're trying to say. She is the clean vocalist and she does have... <sighs> Entire way through, even when she's like putting the most amount of effort in, she never... They never hear like a voice crackle for like a, a harsh vocal or that sort of thing. So I think that's what they're trying to get out. But the emotion that she carries in her voice, which borders on like almost being nonchalant but still quite powerful and quite emo um it's there's too much in there to, for it to be branded as sugary her like i said her somber execution in strip back tracks like swear jar and kabuki they're often some of like the heaviest parts of the album because it's just so it can be just so drab at points and i mean that in the nicest way possible um, alongside driveway birthday kabuki offers another bleak take on life ravaged by mental illness as well like i said before they are very very gung-ho and very very open about all these sort of things and there's these slow meandering points where musically vile child is at its most haunting it is like i said before it's quite foreboding it's quite sinister and everything everything goes a bit monochromatic which is fine it's what you want from some album sometimes i must admit the tempo is kind of all over the place um there is this constant bounce between the doom and gloom and the more musically upbeat punk rock sort of stuff, which at first can be a little jarring. I remember, I was quite worried when I first got this. I initially wasn't a fan. I wasn't... Wasn't a fan, maybe not. I wasn't... If I had listened to it first, I might not have bought it straight away. Um, 
because at the time i think i've said it a hundred times by now i was more into like the fast paced sort of stuff back then and so the fast paced songs on here i was totally in for but when it goes stripped back a bit for swear jar and driveway birthday and that kind of thing i was like nah, i paid money for this now obviously i really really like it um but yeah the, even now the whole tempo thing can be a little bit jarring um but I feel like enough of this album brought enough people in to give them the platform that they needed at a time. And I think by now, I'd say they fully deserve it. Um, after Josh left, like I said, he left three weeks before the album was released. And I remember, like, even now I'm seeing loads of reviews that from back then talked about how before they've really got traction, they are having to go through this huge crisis. Have they fucked it before they've even started? They hadn't. Like I said before, uh, Billy Hutton was brought in to replace Josh. And from there, Milk Teeth released the brilliant double bill of EPs in 2017, which were Be Nice and Go Away. Excuse me. Um, Billy and fellow guitarist Chris would leave Milk Teeth at different points in 2018. They were replaced by M. Foster, who is a lady of a thousand bands, but most notably Nervous. And now, I think, formerly Funeral Shakes. I seem to remember when they did a big fat quiz, she said formally, but I can't see anything because just, maybe I missed it. But M. Foster, very good guitarist, also a fucking brilliant screamer in their new song Stained, which I think I remember reading somewhere. That's where Becky wants to go for the second Milk Teeth album or whatever next release comes next. That's almost like a sentence. Um, they want to go back to this sort of like dirty grunge sort of thing from... Vile Child and like I said Stain is a testament to that and if they can make an entire album as good as Stain I for one welcome our angsty overlords and yeah I think it is brilliant and the really satisfying thing I've got now apart from a lack of composure to talk is so I've been to see Milk Teeth twice now I've been quite lucky in that regard they've supported Was it Don Broker or was it Lower Than Atlantis? I think it's when they supported Lower Than Atlantis. It was, yes. They supported Lower Than Atlantis and I remember at the time thinking they were a bit... I couldn't put my finger on what it was. I think that's when they still had um, Chris and Billy in the band. But yeah, they were a little bit... They just didn't have the same energy from what I've seen on videos. And as it turned out, literally like a week afterwards, they said they needed to take a break because... Um, they just had shit going on, which is fair enough. Look after yourselves. That's what, that, yeah. Supportive words that I can use. And then he came out the following year supporting Enter Shikari. And they, you you could tell the uh, break did them well because they looked so much more energetic, so happier. Ollie still looks fucking bananas, but that's fine because we love him for it. And... What's satisfying to me now is I went with a friend of mine from work and I'm fully aware that pretty much everyone that went was there for Shikari. But when it got announced and that Milk Teeth were supporting, everyone kept coming up to me to say if I'd seen it because I'd gone about them so much at work. People have recognized the name. They may not recognize the music, but they know them by name. And so I went there with my friend from work. I got really into the Milk Teeth part, got as close as I could. And now, so 
gig was months ago. I can't remember when because I won't lie. It's the first time I'd ever been in a mosh pit. And it was a Shikari mosh pit. And I don't remember a lot of where I was apart from just trying not to elbow tiny people in the head. But even now, every time we're at work and it's just me and my mate in the office, he will just play Milk Teeth because he adores them. And little satisfying like things like that, which is why kind of a point why I do this podcast anyway, is to talk tell talk to other people about music they might have heard of and so they can get into a new world of music. And he can go from any phase of Milk Teeth, even Ooh, things falling off. Even I'm just trying to think what he said his favorite song was the other day. I think it was Brickwork or Burger Drop, one of them. Or Burying Food. Something begin with B, I feel, which doesn't help because a lot of this album is B. But the fact that they can go, he, um, he can go from never listening to them apart from whenever I rattle on about them to they are what he listens to all the time with the Shikari in his playlist. I think shows how good Milk Teeth are, and it makes me really satisfied that I can do that. So. I'm going to fix all that shit later on the floor with you. That was this week on the This Station Sounds podcast. I really hope you enjoyed as ever. Blah, 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 blah. Social media. Um, What have I got next week? I have... Oh, I think next week's going to be really difficult. I've got One I Jump, which I believe is an emo punk lead-rated album. And I think next week is when I'm doing Devin Townsend's new album, Empath. So... Hope you're all geared up and looking forward to that. I hope you've enjoyed this week. Like I said, um, Million Dead Birds Laughing, Technical Death Metal from Australia. Rhapsody of Fire, Symphonic Power Metal, all the way from Italy. And finishing off with, oh no, sorry, Problematic, can't forget about her. Uh, Acoustic Emo from Charlotte, North Carolina. And then the Punky Brewster, the grungy Dave. Milk Teeth was a vile child, the debut album from 2016. Do go and listen to it anyways. Go out and just buy it. That'll be my suggestion. And I hope I see you all next week. So bye. So bye. Yeah, sure, why not?